According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, getting our first look at Hebrews chapter 2. Although I need to touch base with just one last aspect of uh, chapter 1, verse 14. And uh, we'll do that real quickly, and then we'll move on into the for this reason. You know, when a chapter begins with for this reason, then uh, you probably should pay attention to what the previous chapter was talking about. All right, and that's what we have here. We have a whole chapter with a tremendous amount of doctrine centering on the glories of Christ and His superiority over the angels. And for this reason, not only is He superior over the angels, but you and I have uh, a perspective we have to maintain. We have a salvation we cannot neglect. And there is a warning that's given. The book of Hebrews has five significant warnings, and this is the first out of the five warning passages of Hebrews. And it all comes out of the for this reason that starts chapter 2. And so if there's anything we're fuzzy on, anything that wasn't clear as we worked our way through chapter 1, we want to end the fuzziness and make sure we're clear that uh, Christ is superior to the angels and uh, that he has inherited a much a more glorious name a more excellent name than they all right before we start this morning let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the father to open the eyes of our understanding we got some tough verses this morning so let's pray hard shall we pray Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful so much for your grace and truth. Father, singing in our heart and celebrating and loving you, rejoicing over your faithfulness day by day and moment by moment. And Father, once again, we have a day in which you have called for your children to assemble together to study the living and abiding Word of God. And so, Father, we call upon your faithfulness. We have brothers and sisters here, right here, right now, that have assembled as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness. Bless our time of study. Edify each one of us, Father, and glorify your Son, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, I ran out of time last week, and Communion Sundays are always short anyway, but um, as we were dealing with verse 14, the last thing, and I stole a slide to put it on this week's slide, um, Remember, as chapter 1 was coming to an end, we were watching the diminishment of angels, that angels diminish. You and I are going to be glorified. Angels are going to be anti-glorified, if you will. Uh, The the angelic experience is the opposite from our experience. We live a life of mortality, a life of humility, a life of uh, in our earthly existence, and we are looking forward to eternity future And our eternity future is going to be one of tremendous glory. And I know uh, we're all looking forward to that. I have yet to meet somebody that uh, was excited about maybe keeping their physical body for eternity, and they weren't excited about the resurrection body that is uh, coming up, all right? Everybody I know is looking forward to that resurrection body. If, if, if I do encounter somebody that's going to say, no thanks, I'll keep this body here, uh, let me know. I'm going to check them into a mental hospital at some point, okay? That's somebody that needs some help. Because the body to be revealed, that body of glory made without hands, that body of glory in the heavenly places is what we're looking forward to. That's the mansion. When this tent is torn down, that mansion is, is going to be bestowed upon us. Now, that's us. Angels are going the other direction. Angels have always been beings of glory. They've always been spirit beings, beings of light, beings of glory, beings of power, beings of divine majesty in ways you and I and our mortality would struggle with, okay? A single angel can go out and kill 187,000 soldiers in a single night. That's, That's pretty glorious, all right? And what are they headed for? They're actually headed for an eternity of diminished power, diminished glory, of servitude, all right? And so uh, we want to understand that. Many of the present functions for angels are going to lessen during the millennium and disappear entirely throughout the fullness of times. Think about it. What is everything the angels do right now? Most of that won't be necessary. Your guardian angel will be out of a job when you have a resurrection body, right? There's a lot of things angels do now 
And they won't have to do them in the millennium, and they're not going to have to do them in the fullness of time. So gradually, more and more of their functions are going to be removed. More and more of their functions are going to disappear. That's why it says they're going to be abolished. Similar to prophecy and tongues and knowledge and all the temporary gifts at the beginning of the church age. When those functions expired, then they were abolished. And we're told that in 1 Corinthians 13. All right? And so when we talk about abolishing all rule and authority and power in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, guess what? It's the same concept we had in chapter 13 about abolishing prophecy and tongues and signs and miracles and the, the temporary gifts there. When the function is no longer needed, then it's no longer there. All right? And so those angels and their role, their functions are going to be abolished. Presently, that's, what, that's what, how I understand he abolishes all rule and authority and power. He's not hunting down and exterminating angelic beings, okay? That's, uh, we don't want to take it that way. But he is abolishing all rule and authority and power, and we understand that. Presently exalted above humanity, reviling angelic majesties is a tremendous expression of arrogance. We talked about that. And then finally, the future exaltation of humanity is going to lower angels to their eternal servant function. And so in this case, when the glory that is to be revealed later surpasses the glory that preceded it, then we can say that that glory that preceded it no longer even has a glory. All right? Are you familiar with that concept? We taught that doctrine in 1 Corinthians because grace followed law There was a glory in the giving of the law, but there was a greater glory in the giving of grace. And so that was a concept we taught in 1 Corinthians. That same concept comes up here. The beings of glory are now the servants. And that in Hebrews 1 is is emphasized in verse 7. It's emphasized in verse 14. And we can't lose sight of that before we cross into chapter 2 or we miss the point of for this reason. All right? Hebrews 1, 7 of the angels, he says who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Understand the servant function of that as winds and fire. They're energy sources, they're power sources, and that's what they're going to be in the millennial kingdom and in the new heavens and in the new earth. Likewise, a servant function. Verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Uh, You think... uh, uh, this was all new and fiction and made up, and, and it was kind of neat to see uh, J.K. Rowling write about this in the Harry Potter novels or see it in the movies when they had all these house elves that would just pop in out of nowhere and do a bunch of servant stuff and then pop out again. Or, uh, you know, make the bed or fix the dinner or whatever they're doing. What, what's the function of those house elves uh, at, uh, at uh, Hogwarts, right? Well, what's the, serv- what's the function of the angels, as we're told, ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And uh, this is a, a, a huge blessing for the angels to be humbled like this in this way. Of course, a third of the angels didn't think so. Satan and his crowd, they wanted no part of this. All right, And so they are in rebellion against the plan of God, which calls for their diminishing. And they're actually on a, on a suicide pact, right? The, the fallen angels are bent upon promoting themselves. Satan and his five-eye wills was all about self-promotion. But if you want to understand something, uh, we got Matthew 19.30 and Matthew 20 and verse 16, and these often get quoted, but they don't often get put into an angelic realm. All right? And I think more and more of what Jesus was speaking of actually spans not only the human experience, but into the angelic material as well. And so it says, uh, Matthew 19, verse 27, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Okay, and then a little bit of sour grapes on Peter's part. I imagine he's, he's given up a lot. I mean, he left his fishing business. He didn't leave his mother-in-law. We see her later on. Um, but whatever else he left, okay? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, who have followed me, In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So here's a blessing. Here's a reward. The twelve apostles of the Lamb will be sitting on these twelve thrones in the the kingdom. And it says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake 
will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, we teach that a lot. We think about that a lot. But do we ever consider that the angels were first and humans were last? Do we ever stop to consider that in the scope of angelity and humanity? Does it surprise us then that the angels were first, but God's plan is for the older to serve the younger? Why do you think it was selected that way for Jacob and Esau? Why do you think the older shall serve the younger? Why do you think he keeps giving that as a pattern that we might learn? What is the pattern of the prodigal son, whereby the younger son is the one that departs and then is restored to his father's house, whereas the older son never went out of the father's house? See, do we, do we view the prodigal son parable crossing, spanning between both humanity and angelity? Do we consider what function the angels have as the older brother that never left the father's house, but the, son, the younger brother was the one that had to be reconciled that was reconciled when the god man died on the cross see anyway there's there's more that you can teach on that all right see i think any passage of scripture when you go back and you remind yourself that we're a part of the angelic conflict i think quite a few passages of scripture just come alive and go oh wait a minute there's a bigger picture being told here than just the one i normally think about and so the uh the first shall be last many who are first will be last and the last first my children used to quote, my third born child used to quote this a lot when he loved being the last and the first and so forth. And then he quit quoting that when a little sister came along and then <laughs> there, was a new, there was a new last who shall be first in any event. All right, chapter 20 and verse 16, same thing. Uh, but again, it's, uh, this is with the parable of the laborers and the, the crowd that came at just the last hour. And uh, the crowd that had been working all day long, they were all bent out of shape because God's the God of grace and they were trying to approach things on a works basis. And um, again, the last shall be first and the first last. Now that's a different chapter and that's a different story. I think the contrast between a law approach and a grace approach is describing Israel and the church in a contrast there. The law approach versus the grace approach. But even so, I think a law approach is, would fit well with the angels as we're going to see this hour, as we're going to see in, in Hebrews chapter 2, that when the angels fell, their standard for falling or remaining elect angels was a standard of works. It was a standard of a statement of making a choice and facing an eternal consequence. That's the angelic standard, all right? And that's totally different from the human standard whereby we're born as sinners. We didn't choose, but we were born as sinners. And then God gives us a choice if we accept his redemption or reject his redemption. And that's the corollary. So we'll see that as well. All right. All of that is material I didn't get to last week as I ran out of time. But understand the first shall be last, the last shall be first. We can consider that as a concept for angels and humans. Angelity was first, Humanity was second, but the last shall be first. It was not, the, the, the celebrity of the universe is the God-man, Jesus Christ, not the God-angel. It wasn't the angel of the Lord that went to the cross. It was the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. Jesus Christ went to the cross. And it's the exaltation of humanity that we're going to see. So that's what we get into in chapter 2. You'll notice, if I may skip ahead slightly, in verse 5, he says, for he did not, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? All right. And so right there, and we'll get there, we'll teach this, relax. But right there, what you see is in chapter one, it was all about Christ's superiority of the angels. In chapter 2, it continues with Christ's superior, superiority over the angels, but then it talks about us. Then it goes beyond Christ to us, to humanity, to those that are redeemed by Jesus Christ. The world to come. The world to come is not a world of angelic glory. The world that Satan destroyed was a world of angelic glory. And it ended up tohu abohu at the end of Satan's rebellion. The world that, that was was a world of angelic glory, not the world to come. 
The world to come is for the Son of Man and humanity. That's the world to come, all right? And the angels will be our servants. And uh, this all throughout chapter 2, we have that. Man, son of man, verse 7, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. We'll deal with that. When you get down to why he became flesh and blood, why he had to suffer, uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Okay, Angels don't have flesh and blood, but we do. And so Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and identified with us that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He has to do this work to redeem us, to free us. In verse 16, assuredly he does not give help to angels. He does not give help to angels. Like I say, you know, the angel of the Lord did a lot of things in the Old Testament, but the angel of the Lord did not go to the cross. He does not give help to angels, but he gives help to humanity and specifically to the descendant of Abraham. And when we get to that point, we're going to see that all humanity is provided for, but only those who respond by faith, only those that respond by faith then become the beneficiaries of Christ's finished work. And so he gives help to all of humanity, but precisely to those that respond by faith, that is the son, descendants of Abraham. So we will, uh, we've got a lot to do uh, as we get there. Now, for this morning, we have a warning passage to look at in verses 1 through 4, all right? For this reason, for this reason we, and the author includes himself in much of this book, the author is not preaching at people, wagging his finger and saying, you better do this, you better do this, you better do this. The author includes himself in, in almost every imperative. He, he makes it a first person plural and he includes himself and he says, let us do this. Let us do this. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift from it. This uh, first warning is the warning against drifting. All right, we're preaching against drifting this morning. This is an anti-drifter kind of speech. And that's what we're, we're, this is the warning. There's five of them in the book, but here's the first one. Don't drift, all right? Because if you drift, then you're subject to the next four warnings, okay? And it just gets worse. It just gets worse. So don't drift. Stay in the Word of God. Stay saturated with the Word of God. The grace that saved you is the grace you want to walk in all day, every day. Don't drift. So for this reason encompasses the totality of, some people say chapter 1, I think chapters 1 verses 5 through 14. You can even include the prologue if you'd like. But it includes the totality of what chapter 1 was communicating. The greatness of Christ, the diminishing of angels. The, the exaltation of Christ and the diminishing of angels is the for this reason. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming again with a righteous scepter and an eternal kingdom. All of that was in chapter 1. The scepter of his kingdom is the scepter of righteousness. It is a kingdom that will not end. His enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. For this reason, Christ is coming again with a righteous scepter and an eternal kingdom which will continue beyond this present heaven and earth. Or to hear Peter say it, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? All right, there's an exhortation that Second uh, Peter is very much in, uh, in accordance with what we're reading here in the for this reason, don't drift warning of Hebrews 2. Now humanity is party to these blessings. That is, if we respond by faith, if we're saved, Humanity is party to these blessings and we will inherit the salvation of Jesus Christ and we will see the angelic realm diminished to our servitude. Diminished to our servitude. See, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Okay, are you saved? These are your servants. All right. Now, is that reason for boasting? Is that reason, reason for lording it over them? Not at all. This is all grace. These beings of majesty and glory and power are going to be diminished. 
you and I are going to be exalted. And for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. You and I have a goad to urgency on the basis of this. Not to earn it, not to deserve it, because we've already been given it, but in appreciation and in grace response. Grace is not a license to be lazy. Grace is a goad for greater greater diligence. Are we clear on that? There are people that abuse grace, that don't understand grace, that hate grace. I call them legalists. And legalists don't like grace people. And they will often mock us and ridicule us. And one thing they throw in our face is that, well, you're just, you're just pro-sin. You, you're just, you think you can kill somebody and still go to heaven? And if I hear that one more time, I might just... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking volunteer to kill somebody and go to heaven. No, but the next person that tells me that, but see, they're always going there. Oh, you mean you can kill somebody and still go to heaven? All right, because grace is grace and eternal security is eternal security. Now, and so they accuse you of easy believism or they accuse you of being soft. They accuse you of being lazy. And the apostle Paul said it's just the opposite. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And yet I labored more than all of them. When you appreciate grace, you work harder. When you appreciate forgiveness, you love more. Jesus taught that. And so for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And the author includes himself on this. He was not one of the original apostles. And we'll see that here in verse 3 and 4. And and this is definitely second generation. Uh, Not Paul. I believe it also disproves Barnabas, which was finally tipped the scales on the Barnabas theory for me. Because the author said he was not an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, but Barnabas was, Paul was. All true apostles were. All right, so we have the for this reason. There, that's better. I was still looking at my Philippians notes. All right, for this reason. Now, we have warnings Remember when I said last week that the chapter division was unfortunate and that if, if, if I'd have been around, if I was in charge of chapterfication in the Middle Ages, I wouldn't have chapter broke there? Um, I changed my mind. It's still a terrible chapter division, but I'm okay with it. They're, they're actually, remember how chapter one began with all those P's? Chapter two also begins with some, with some P's. There were five of them that started chapter one. There were now three of them this start chapter 2. And so whether you want to take that as a chapter division or not, it, nevertheless, it does signify that the author is going back, almost starting over again, back to how he started with those five Ps. Now he's hitting three more Ps, grabbing the reader's attention, grabbing the listener's attention. This is more oratory than written impact. okay? And uh, speaking these Ps and uh, hammering them this way, uh, gets their attention, and it brings it from the glories of Christ to our responsibility. Yes, Christ is glorious, but we are in Christ, and we better be diligent about what we're doing. Okay, That's the impact on this. So there are uh, three Ps that start chapter 2 in the first of five warning passages the book of Hebrews conveys. And here's the Ps. The much closer, the pay attention, and don't drift. Those are all Ps in the Greek the letter pi, right? Parasoteros is much closer. Prosecho is pay attention. Or uh, cling to would be another way to render that. Uh, we'll talk about, it's a, it's a Navy term actually, um, but it can be used in a classroom setting for paying attention. And then don't drift. The verb for drifting, parareo, is uh, the final P. And so these three come out and uh, as, as we've said before, much of Hebrews is designed to be spoken aloud to an audience that's listening and has a powerful oratory to it as this alliteration, especially the p, p-, p-, p- that's a very plosive consonant that's designed to uh, uh, grab the attention, all right? So parasoteros is the much closer. How close? Closer. Am I closer? Not, not close enough. Closer, okay? And... Uh, you know, why do so many of our hymns speak of closer? Just a closer walk with thee, and I want to be closer. 
And we all should be striving to be closer. That's the, that's the, the blessings that we have in the Word of God. And then pay attention, pros echo. And, uh, and, and come, uh, if you're coming together uh, much closer, then you can be bound in, uh, in, in paying attention. The word is used of tying a ship to a dock, all right? And if, you, if, you're, if you're tied up to the pier, that's pretty close, okay? Uh, can you get closer than being bound together, you know, tied in that, in that pier? Pay attention and don't drift, which by the way, if you're moored to the dock and you throw the anchors out, you're not going to drift, are you? That's the, that's the language on that, Okay? So the tandem imperative, a tandem imperative, pay close attention and don't drift, all right? It's, it's saying the same thing two different ways. Uh, Paul is very fond of that structure. Other authors are fond of that structure. Um, some people that try to defend the Pauline authorship, they point to this and say, well, Paul does that. Paul says, you know, in everything but in nothing, Paul likes to give the, the opposite sides of the same coin and throw them out there as tandem imperatives. Okay? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's very Pauline to do that, but he's not the only one that does that. Jesus does that. The author of Hebrews does that. Um, so um, pay closer attention so that we do not drift. These, this is a tandem imperative. Both are employing nautical expressions. As I pointed out, the pros echo is used in secular Greek of holding a ship toward port. The second expression could also indicate fastening the anchor to the seabed in order to keep the ship from drifting. And so both are used in tandem here. Both imperatives combine. Uh, it'll come back again, by the way, uh, Hebrews 6.19. Whoever this author is, he did a lot of sailing in his day. Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. More hymns come out of that verse as well. We have an anchor. So this is what we have. Don't drift. Don't drift. And I love that as an imperative. Uh, I feel like I want to put that on a business card and just start handing it to people. (laughs) Don't drift. All right? Because biblical Christianity is stable. God has designed for us to have a stable walk. We're not tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine. We don't drift. We have guidance. We have an anchor. We have a firm foundation. And if uh, we find that we're going through a time of instability, I think that's a red flag and we should ask the Lord, Lord, why am I not stable? What is it that I'm not learning? What is it that I'm not grasping from from the Word of God. There should be stability here, Father. And even if I don't have all the answers, I still should be stable as I'm walking by faith and trusting in You. And so we have uh, principles that apply that as well. The first term also occurs twice in Luke's writing, so people will point to that and say, uh-huh, this is a term that, Paul, that uh, Luke is, is uh, comfortable with or makes use of. Acts chapter 8 and verse 6, Acts chapter 8 and verse 10. And Luke particularly makes use of them in a, in a learning context whereby you are paying attention to something that is being spoken. Acts chapter 8. You know, the, the pastor's in the pulpit and he's wondering, is anybody listening? Is anybody paying attention? But he doesn't know because he doesn't look at anybody. He just preaches to the clock and the thermostat and the, the amen sign over there. Look at various air conditioning vents. Acts 8, 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. In verse 10 of the same chapter, and they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying this man is what is called the great power of God. And so paying attention to Philip or paying attention to Simon and uh, the conflict that happens there in Acts chapter 8. Also in Peter's writing, 2 Peter 1.19, 2 Peter. And we find many parallels between Hebrews and 2 Peter, which is interesting. I think Peter had access to Hebrews before he wrote Peter, which means uh, it gives it an earlier date than the writings of First and Second Peter. Um, 
2 Peter 1.19 says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. All right? If you're in pitch blackness, if you're in the bottom of a well, and then someone lights a, a lamp, does that get your attention? <laughs> you know? Would you, would you have a, a desire to look to that light and by the guidance of that light maybe get out of the deep well that you found yourself in? Well, guess what? We are. We're in a fallen world. We're, we're saved by grace, but we're living in this fallen world and that light is shining and we need to walk by that light until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. All right. We have a cognate term besides pros-echo. Echo, there's a cognate term, cat-echo, that's used three more times in the book of Hebrews. And I would encourage you to consider that this is really one of the main points of the book of Hebrews. Hold fast, all right? Hold fast. Don't lose faith. Don't drift. Don't, uh, don't walk away from the Lord. Don't walk away from your Christian walk. He never again uses prosecco, and he never again uses uh, the second term as a hapax, by the way. It only shows up here for don't drift. And I think because it's a P, he used it. <laughs> but he uses cat echo, which starts with a K, in chapter 3 and in chapter 10. Hebrews 3, 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if... We hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. All right, so we want to hold fast. That's an imperative in Hebrews is hold fast. Likewise, verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And so again, holding fast, it's a necessity. It's given to us as an expectation. We don't want to not hold fast. We don't want to drift. And then chapter 10 and verse 23. Since we have this great high priest, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, since we have all this, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. You know, to me, some of the saddest things in the world are, I mean, yeah, it's sad when an unbeliever rejects the gospel and dies and goes to hell, but you know what else is sad? A believer who should know better, who walks away from doctrine, who walks away from scripture, who walks away from the word of God and says, eh, and they lose their appetite, they lose their hunger, they lose their first love, and they're drifting. And they're absolutely out there. And that's what Hebrews is warning about. Don't drift. Don't drift. And the warnings get severe. All right. Luke's gospel also records a similar admonishment given by Christ. Hold fast. In Luke 21, verses 31 and 34. Interesting that it's Luke's gospel that uses this vocabulary in describing this. It's one of the synoptic gospels, but since I do think Luke was the author of Hebrews, then uh, the various uh, word usage parallels that we come across are interesting to me. Luke 21, verses 33 and 34. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Then it says, be on guard. That is, look fast, hold fast so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. And so you've got to be on the alert. Hold fast. Don't drift. Don't drift. All right. Now, what have we heard? Hold fast. Pay attention. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Well, how did the book begin? We know what we've heard. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. All right, what have we heard? The message of his son. God's spoken message in his son. That message that is first delivered and then built upon. God's spoken message in his son. It will be expanded upon to include the apostolic ministry and written scriptures of the New Testament. 
Pay attention. And our primary uh, impact here is what Jesus Christ revealed and what is given through the apostles and the prophets. Let me get back to Hebrews 2 now. What have we heard? Pay much closer attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away from it. Now, I'm going to talk about the so great salvation. When we talk about verses 2 and 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that's a rhetorical question. There is no escape. If you despised the Word of God, you're in debt to it and you will pay the consequence. But then it goes on to say, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. And so there's the message of Jesus, and then there's the expanded confirmation of that in the New Testament epistles, the ministry of the apostles and prophets in the written scriptures of the New Testament. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And so just a little preview for what we'll deal with in verses 3 and 4. But we're talking about how it was first spoken by the Lord and the author wasn't there to hear it. But it was then confirmed to us. The author includes himself in the us who heard it through those who heard so this, uh, this rules out the Apostle Paul as an author for the book of Hebrews and Barnabas and any other true apostle. This is now somebody who learned from the apostles who is, uh, who is writing this book. So what we have heard. All right. So for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard and do not drift. Are we clear? I'm preaching to the wrong people. I need to preach this to the people that aren't here this morning. (laughs) How do you do that? All right. This is our imperative. And if it gets old, if it gets boring, if it gets tedious, if we're like, ho-hum, here we go again, then we're putting ourselves in that Malachi hardness of heart, the message of Malachi, whereby doctrine became humdrum, and here we go again. Okay, we can't go there. We can't go there. Now, much closer attention. That's a, that's a comparative by degree. It's in contrast. Closer than who? Closer than what? Closer than what? What are we talking about here? The word spoken through angels. And we, we're, we're still with the angels. We've never left the angelic context, have we? From chapter 1 to chapter 2, we're still dealing with the angels. Yes, we're warned to pay attention and don't drift, but we're still dealing with the angels and uh, Christ's superiority of the angels. If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape? If angels couldn't escape, if angels gave their word and faced the consequences, how will we escape? Because we've been given much more by degrees. This is a a how much more contrast the a fortiori principles of this on the one hand and this is so much more this on the one hand is the word spoken through angels on the other hand the word given through christ okay and uh, the word spoken through angels is confirmed it says proved unalterable but it's confirmed it's a it's a term that would be cognate to the uh, word confirmed in verse three there The word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Think about it. If if you're told that you have to give a word and the next word out of your mouth is eternal. The next word out of your mouth, there's no taking back. The next word out of your mouth will determine whether you're following the Lord or you're following Satan. And before you say it, just know the next word out of your mouth Choose you this day whom you will serve. The next word out of your mouth determines whether you are elect for all eternity or a fallen angel for all eternity. And there's no going back. It is fixed. It is a fixed, unalterable declaration. Okay? How severe is that? 
to me, that's pretty severe <laughs> I mean, in my mind, right? Now contrast that with what we're given, okay? Because we're given an opportunity to come back. We're given a word of grace. We're given a word of reconciliation. We're given a word that will provide for us eternal life and we don't have to work for it, earn it, deserve it. It's simply offered and we accept it by faith. Now, you want to neglect that? (laughs) Really? Don't drift. Don't neglect and don't drift. All right. And so we have some aspects here. The word spoken through angels. Satan's word began in his heart, but when spoken aloud, proved steadfast, unalterable. Now you've had this already if you were with us back in 2 Corinthians when we did an advanced angelology series. All right, If you weren't with us for that, then you maybe have not had this before. Maybe you've never learned that Satan used to be a good guy. All of the fallen angels were created righteous. They were created sinless. They were created perfect. But then Satan rebelled and a third of the angels went with him. I'll show you that. It's from Revelation 12 and verse 4. But when you read Isaiah 14, what does it say? It says, you said in your heart. Well, how does God know that? Well, God looks upon the heart, right? But if it stayed in his heart... See, what if he says it in his heart, but then later he repents and he changes what he had said in his heart and he repents and then he says the right thing after a change of heart. See, Jesus spoke a message similar to this about a brother that said he would do it then didn't and then a brother that said he wouldn't do it and then felt bad about it and went out and did it after all. And he threw that out to the Pharisees and said, who did the will of my father? Okay. Again, let's, let's go beyond humanity and, and understand, is there an angelic reality being taught in that, in that lesson? Isaiah 14, uh, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. In Hebrew, that's Halel ben Shachar. It's the closest thing to Bob that I found anywhere in the Bible. Is uh, Halel, star of the morning. Robert is Teutonic, German, for uh, bright in fame. And Hallel is Hebrew. It means two things. It means bright and it means famous. And so Hallel is the Hebrew equivalent of, of Robert. Or Lucifer, if you want to call him Lucifer or just call him Bob. Uh, but this is the fall of Satan right here. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. On the original earth of glory, of angelic glory, they were organized into angelic nations. But you said in your heart, there it is, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And we've gone through these several times. But he said it in his heart. When did it come out loud? When did he say it verbally? When did he say it in defiance? When did he say it and invite others to join with him? At that point then, it becomes steadfast, unalterable. All right, and so we've got this, and we've got Ezekiel 28, and we've got other, other passages that speak to this. And this, in contrast to all of his I wills, God says, here's what you will do. And uh, Yahweh says, all right, you will, you will, you will, and uh, tells him the consequences of rebellion. Okay? And so there it is. Uh, you will go down to the pit. And uh, the answer is there. All right. So Satan's word began in his heart. One third of all angels were swept away by the dragon's tail. Revelation 12, 4. And by the way, the world's not going to end on Saturday. If, you, if somebody's trying to tell you that, just laugh at them, okay? The, the sign of the woman and the stars that's not in the heavens today has nothing to do, I know there's books being written and there's websites and there's morons and I'll be glad when they're proven wrong and then, you know, on Sunday I'll say, now go away, I never want to hear from you again. Okay, just repent and leave me alone. All right. So a great sign appeared in the heavens. This is going to be in the middle of the tribulation, not in the church age. And uh, the woman is Israel. 
the sun, moon, and stars. I mean, just read Genesis and learn about Joseph's dream and you understand Israel on this. And the woman was with child. She cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. This is the Virgin Mary delivering Christ in, in 4 BC or 6 BC or 1 AD or whatever date you like to use for the manger. All right? And then there's a dragon. And the dragon wants to kill the baby. Just as Herod sent forth the soldiers to kill the Christ child in Bethlehem. Now of this, the only thing I'm going to focus on in this is verse 4, this dragon, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. All right? That's just one little snippet out of a much larger prophecy. If you want more, you know, the Revelation series is on the website. But understand that. We understand that. It's only one verse, but it's the only clue we have as to how many angels followed after Satan. All right? We know there's myriads upon myriads of angels, but evidently a third of them followed after Satan. Two-thirds stayed faithful. Okay? Anyway. That's the concept there. Somebody preached it. That, that's why we know Michael and Gabriel. We know two good names and Satan's the only bad name that we know. Okay. Well, I know Abaddon and I know Apollyon and I know Beelzebub and, and we can debate whether they're the same as Satan or not, but I think we have more fallen angel names than we usually think about and, uh, and that. We do only have Michael and Gabriel though on the good side. I'm convinced of that. Biblically speaking, Apocrypha has a few more. Anyway, one-third of all angels were swept away by the dragon's tail. Regardless, however many angels became fallen angels, understand this before you leave today. The angelic fall was not a corporate fall of all angels in Satan. Angelity is not procreative. Angelity is not a federal headship like humanity is. You and I became sinners in Adam when Adam sinned. Not so with the angels. Every single fallen angel made their own choice of rebellion. They gave their own unalterable word. They spoke their own permanent unalterable word. Each individual fallen angel made their own individual choice. And I think this is hinted at in Ezekiel 28 when he's thrown to the ground and he's placed before kings. See, God is a God that displays things. And he displays things and tells us, what are you going to do? You're going to learn from that? You're going to make a better choice? You're going to follow that? Remember when Judah should have learned from her older sister from Samaria? And she didn't? Same thing. These other angels should learn from Satan. And in Ezekiel 28, it's interesting because he was blameless until unrighteousness was found in him. Remember that? Ezekiel 28, 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So it started inside. Every sin starts inside. Every sin you ever do, every sin I ever do. Before I do it, I thought about doing it. I decided to do it. All right? Mental attitude sins precede overt sins. You were blameless until you weren't. Okay? And that's true of every fallen angel. It's not true of any human being, except for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the only ones created sinless that then fell into a state of unrighteousness. From Cain and Abel and you and me and every other human on the planet, we start unrighteous. We're born unrighteous. Those cute little bundles you bring home from the hospital, right? Little Cyrus Grubb. He's our newest baby around here, I think. Yeah, Cyrus. A little cute little, he's a sinner, okay? He needs a Savior. He will be made righteous when he believes in Jesus Christ and receives eternal life. But until then, he's unrighteous, okay? But Satan is righteous until he becomes unrighteous, and every fallen angel is like that. And then it says that he is thrown down, I have cast you as profane, so, verse 16, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. When it becomes expressed, when it becomes active, then comes the consequences. I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Aha. Object lesson. (laughs) Okay. Learn from this. And yet a third of the angels didn't learn the right lesson. They followed after this example. And they made the same choice. They agreed with Satan. That's why it's called the devil and his angels. Every angel that followed after him was in agreement with him. That the father's plan was wrong and they were going to do their own thing. So, each individual fallen angel made their own individual choice and pronounced their own steadfast, unalterable word. And I mentioned uh, earlier, I mentioned Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. And I like that. There's also Deuteronomy 30 verses 19 and 20 that I think in concept we can apply to the angels. Although the Deuteronomy 30 passage is applied to Israel. I want to be clear on that. But why, in other words, why then do you call heaven and earth to witness if there's not an angelic component to this? I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by, um, sticky page, by holding fast to him right? Holding fast, not drifting. Holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. All right. So that passage is given to Israel. I want to be clear. Do you understand what I'm saying? That text is given to Israel, but in concept, as, as we connect it back to Hebrews 2, 2, the word spoken by angels or through angels, can you envision a similar message being given to those angels. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose life. Give your word. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death. All right? Now, again, are we speculating? Are we reading between the lines? Or, well, to some degree you have to, because other than Hebrews 2.2, 2, what other verses do we have that talk about angel salvation? What other verses do we have that talk about a word given through angels whereby there's no turning back? We're burning the ships. We're burning the bridge. The word is given and there is no repentance. Okay? Something happened on the angelic earth whereby Satan and his angels became locked into their fallen state and Michael and Gabriel and all the good angels became locked into their elect state. They are presently, today, every angel is already in their eternity future. They're already locked into their, into their eternal state. Okay? But they weren't always that way. How did they get there? How do they get to where they are now with the elect and the fallen angels on this side and that? I believe Hebrews 2.2 gives us the biggest clue anywhere in all of Scripture. The words spoken through angels became unalterable. And every, every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Every angel, every fallen angel gets what they deserve. How horrifying is that? You and I get grace. (laughs) They get what they deserve. Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Each fallen angel was individually guilty and individually justly recompensed in contrast to humanity. Being corporately guilty and afforded a grace provision for corporate redemption. All right, I know, it's awfully tough. Here we are. Think through this though. All right, think through this. There's a, there's a powerful doctrine that comes out in Hebrews 5. And when we learn that doctrine, when we embrace that doctrine, when we love that doctrine, we get saved, all right? There's a powerful doctrine in terms of justification and redemption that is only applicable to humanity. It is not offered to angels. It cannot be offered to angels because the premise underneath it, the basis for that offer is not, angels aren't eligible for that. I'm talking about Romans 5. 
And, uh, and maybe you haven't thought about it in this way before. Maybe um, you haven't been taught or maybe you just haven't really thought about it. Might be useful, though, in your evangelism if you're talking to uh, an unbeliever that's all horrified over their sins. You can assure them that their sins are paid for, their sins are forgiven, and it's not their sins that's sending them to hell anyway. Okay? Give them this doctrine of positional truth. Give them this doctrine of our lost estate in Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see that? We all sinned when Adam sinned. We're all in Adam. Everybody sinned. So, you know, if you think about all the sins you've ever done from the day you were born to today and the ones you're planning to do later this afternoon and other plans you got lined up for next week, all right, or any other sin you're going to commit between now and your physical death, all of those sins put together would not have sent you to hell. You weren't dead in those sins. You were dead in Adam. It's the wages of sin is death, not the wages of sins, your sins. Sin, singular. All right, so through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, Down to verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, and that's true, you became spiritually dead because of Adam's original sin, much more did the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So we have universal condemnation and we have a universal provision of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's how God can be gracious. That's how God can treat us in grace, by making a universal provision for our redemption. And actually, even before that, by condemning us universally in Adam. That was an act of grace. Thank God that when he judged Adam and struck Adam down with spiritual death, he assigned that spiritual death to you and to me and to all of us. That was an act of God's grace. He condemned us by grace in Adam so that he could then save us by grace in Christ. So that we would not be left like the angels, individually, personally accountable for our own satanic rebellions and this and that and the word we speak being um, unalterable. All right. So, um, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned, if by the life of one, the righteousness will reign in life through Christ Jesus. Verse 18, through one transgression resulting in condemnation to all men, through one act of righteousness resulting in justification of life to all men. Over and over and over again, Paul keeps hammering this home. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. So quit trying to earn eternal life. You can't do it. He did it on the cross. Through his work, through his obedience and going to the cross, you can be made righteous. All right. And so this is the word of our grace. This is the the word given through Christ and confirmed through the apostles. And we're going to neglect this? The warning says, don't neglect this. Pay much closer attention to this. The redemption we have in Jesus Christ. Our heritage, our inheritance, our eternal blessings, the glory to be revealed. We've already been given the down payment in Christ. Don't drift from that. Don't drift from that. All right. You see, there's been a fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that word spoken, you know, hell wasn't made for humanity. You ever think about that? Hell was made for the angels. It just so happens that because it's there, God's able to use it. Fallen man gets to get thrown in there too, but originally it was the angels' abode created by God for their eternal dwelling. A fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This fire is the eternal abode for what is earned or deserved. Humanity will also be assigned that fire upon rejection 
of salvation by grace. And this is why death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire and the judgment that happens there. Now, humanity ought to observe such eternal consequences and not drift, not neglect the grace redemption way of life. Okay? That's my translation of Hebrews 2, 3. Humanity ought to observe such eternal consequences and not neglect the grace redemption way of life. It is an urgent imperative. Pay much closer attention to the grace redemption way of life. You see, a redeemed people ought to walk in a manner worthy of God and pleasing to Him. Unlike the angels, who are not a redeemed people, A redeemed people ought to walk in a manner worthy of God and be pleasing to Him. Colossians 1, verses 10 through 12. Again, when you see the fall of angels and when you see that the word they spoke was unalterable, that Satan and those that fell can never be redeemed, when you see the eternal consequences of rebellion, And then you hear a word of reconciliation. Why would you drift from that? Pay much closer attention. A redeemed people ought to walk in a manner worthy of God and pleasing to Him. You realize what we've been given. You realize that God became a man so He could redeem us. He didn't give help to angels, but He gives help to us. He identified, identifies with us. All right. I am going to run out of time on this, aren't I? Let me, because um, I wanted to spend some time giving you the, the common interpretation of this passage, whereby the commentaries will talk about Mosaic law for some reason. Uh, but let's, let's close with Colossians 1, and we'll come back to this next week. Because something this deep You've got to hit it a couple of times and from different angles, maybe. Let's go to Colossians 1. Are you a redeemed person? Then uh, you ought to walk in a manner worthy. Not to earn it, not to deserve it, but worthy of what you've already been given in grace. Colossians 1.10 says, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see this? We are saved by grace. We can't buy it. We can't deserve it. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might. Notice we're not strong. When we're weak, we're strong, but He strengthens us. We're headed for a destiny of strength and glory for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. All right, there it is. This is our salvation. In contrast to the angels, and then it goes, it talks about angels right here, about the invisible and the invisible and our salvation. The angels don't have that salvation. You know, I think all three hymns we sang this morning mentioned singing in my heart and better than the angels. Okay, an angel song could not be sweeter. Angels don't sing about salvation like you and I sing about salvation. In fact, when we get to heaven, when we sing our redemption songs, they can't join. Okay, they have to fold their wings and be silent. We get to keep on singing because we are the redeemed. Okay? We are the redeemed. All right. We also have question and answer time on Wednesday nights. So if you want to follow up on any more of these things or delve a little bit deeper into all these things, uh, we can take advantage of that opportunity as well on Wednesday night. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your grace. And Father, it's, it's unfathomable. We have just bare glimpses into the angelic world. We know that angels were around before humanity. We know that angels fell before humanity. By the time Adam and Eve are put in the garden, the serpent is already a snake. He's already a twisted, fallen liar. 
he deceives Eve. He, he uh, leads Adam and Eve into their fall. And so the other glimpses we get in, in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel and in Hebrews and in, Re- in Revelation where the tail swept away a third of the stars, we just get little glimpses here and there, Father. But we know that those fallen angels, um, they're still operating. They prowl about like roaring lions. They, uh, we struggle against them. That's why, we, that's why you gave us armor. So Father, I pray that classes like this would wake us up and get us to be thinking beyond humanity, get us to be thinking in a heavenly context, cause us, Father, to appreciate grace and the grace that's ours because your Son walked our walk and identified with us. So Father, might we be worthy. I do thank you, Father. And I pray for anyone here this morning that is not yet saved. They've been thinking about it. They've heard the gospel before, maybe. Um, They're not sure if they're going to go to heaven or if they're going to go to hell when they die. And I pray today they would be sure. They might have walked in here without eternal life, Father, but I pray they walk out of here as your children. And they can do that right here, right now, right where they sit. They don't have to walk an aisle. They don't have to stand and testify, right? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, right here, right now. Anybody can believe in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. I thank you, Father, that whosoever will may come. So, Father, uh, thank you for saving us. It's fun to be saved. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.